Good morning. Thank you. It's good to see you, Valley Bible Church, and to be with you today, especially as we continue on our three-week series of membership here at Valley Bible Church. As you know, last week we launched, and next week we will be concluding. If you're taking notes this morning, uh, the blank sheet you have in front of you is not Marta's fault. That's my fault. But we do have an outline, and we will hopefully make it through all of it. Uh, We will begin this morning talking about a path to planting our flag, a path to planting our flag. Uh, As I mentioned, we're in the middle of this three-week series, and the goal is that as we study church membership, it would be an introduction, an explanation, even a defense of our intention to begin formally identifying members of Valley Bible Church. This series is meant to be an encouragement and a call to plant a flag here at Valley Bible Church. There's something particularly meaningful about the symbolism of planting a flag, though at first it may seem a little redundant to do so. After all, if you've planted your boots somewhere, what's the point of planting a flag somewhere? You're already there. But there is something different and unique about having publicly planted a flag somewhere. It is an enduring and public way of declaring that Not only are the boots all present, but that they are all collectively present for a known and single purpose. That's why it's always been inspiring to see a flag flying over a battlement or atop a hill for generations and even millennia. Our nation in particular seems to be captivated by this image. It's no surprise our own national anthem is a song written in 1914 about longing to see a flag flying from Fort McHenry, 131 years later, in 1945, a photographer captured an image of six Marines raising a U.S. flag atop Mount Suribachi at the end of the Battle of Iwo Jima. And so powerful was Iwo Jima. Someone corrected me. Thank you. Uh, So powerful was the image. Actually, I should get it my wife because she speaks Japanese as her first native language before I try to do any of these in public. But (laughs) that image, so iconic and so powerful was it that it became the only image in history to win a Pulitzer Prize the same year it was published. Valley Bible Church here has been blessed for decades, really almost 40 years now, to have faithful men and women of God serving as members of one another here. They're doing that well, and as we consider taking this additional step of declaring in a formal way, we have tried to to lay out a biblical and practical framework for why we as the elders of Valley Bible Church believe this to be a wise course of action, but we do that in the midst of gratitude for the fact that this is a church where this already takes place. And so I would ask as we get ready to dive in and lay out some more of that framework this morning, would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we begin this morning, we are grateful to be gathered here in the name of Christ as your children, to be the family of God, to share in the inheritance of the saints across space and time. And we are especially thankful that we can be gathered this morning together as one body here at Valley Bible Church, and we pray that you would grant to our church wisdom that we would chart a course ahead in a way that would represent well 
what your son came here to begin and the work that he is in the process of completing. We pray that you would preserve the unity of love, the bonds of peace that we enjoy here. We ask that you would guard us from taking steps that would be detrimental to the health of this family, but that we would also, Lord, take those steps that would be beneficial in being as effective as we may be for Christ, not only today, but into the future. And so we begin, Lord, asking for your help and your guidance by your spirit, and we do so in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, again, we are trying to unfold uh, an explanation for the direction that we are thinking of heading in and our plans uh, in an argument that spans three weeks and attempts to answer three questions. The first question that we looked at last week was this, is the concept of church membership biblically derived? Can you, can you get to church membership as an idea by looking at Scripture? In particular, is membership in a local church something the Christian ought to participate in? And if so, is there any support for formal or informal identification with that church? That was the goal to explore last week. This week, we are hoping to answer this question. What is the nature of this membership that we have in the church in practice? What kind of a membership do we have with one another together in this local church that we are gathered in today? And is that church membership on a spectrum closer to a loose association or closer to a tightly committed fellowship? How does the Bible describe the way in which we are to relate to one another? And how can that help us perhaps to consider the potential value of establishing or identifying that membership in a public way? Thirdly, next week, our goal is to answer this question. Is formalized church membership preferable to informal church membership for Valley Bible Church right now and into the future? There's really two options here. A person's membership in a local church, the fact that we are members of one another, that can either be declared in some intentional way or it can be assumed in an informal way based on factors such as involvement or service or commitment and here, nearly 40 years into its existence, I want to make sure we clarify at the beginning, the central purpose of Valley Bible Church hasn't changed. What we're here to accomplish hasn't changed. Our goal of being the people of God, worshiping the Father and becoming like the Son by the power of His Spirit for the glory of God and for the good of those that are around us, that they may come to know Christ as well, that, that hasn't changed. But what has changed is our church is in a different season than it was 40 years ago. We're a considerably larger church than we were at that time. We're confronting new challenges and experiencing new opportunities as we disciple a second and even now a third generation from that which founded this church. We're facing an interesting era of cultural upheaval. And there's new opportunities and challenges to shepherding faithfully through this season of growth. In light of all those factors, then, is it a good idea for us to implement a new approach to declaring our membership here at Valley Bible Church? And I really want to encourage you, please don't miss next week as we try to dive into these practical issues and lay out our thinking as elders. And I want to mention as well here that we are deeply appreciative of the feedback that we have received from you all over the last two weeks. 
appreciative of that enthusiastic feedback we reserve or received. Some of you are really excited, like, yeah, where do I sign up? How do I say I'm in? I want to plant my flag. But also genuinely, we're very appreciative for those of you who have come to express genuine concerns, whose desire is to see that we do not implement something that would compromise those very qualities that make this church a special place and the place that you have come to love and to be a part of and to be members of one another in. We have taken that advice and that feedback very seriously and to heart. And our desire is that uh, we would be able to present to you how we've thought through those things and not gloss over them. So do come back next week and we will try to address as many of those issues that you raise as possible. I hope perhaps even some of them can be addressed this morning. But before we get ahead of ourselves to next week, Let's catch up to where we are so far in the argument that we've sought to lay out. And we began last week, as I mentioned, trying to lay out the biblical case for church membership, the biblical case for church membership. That was the purpose last week is the concept of church membership in the Bible. And can we demonstrate that Christians ought to be identified with a local church? And we saw that identifying as a member of a church is assumed in the Bible's prescription for church members, description of church members, and implication by the reality of being a member, that we are prescribed, commanded to be members of one another in the church universal. We see the description of church members living with one another throughout the New Testament, and there's also an implication for how we ought to live and conduct ourselves based on the fact that in Christ's We're members of each other, whether we realize it or care to be or not. And so if you put that all together, the argument that unfolds in the New Testament is is this. To be a Christian is to be a part of the body of Christ. That body is known as the church universal. To be a Christian is to be joined to as a member, a fellow member, the body of Christ, which, which consists of all those who have put their faith in Christ, both around the world and across time. We are all joined together in this body. That body, though, is a body that Christ has given instruction concerning. He has said it is to be structured, it is to function in a certain way. And so every Christian ought to function in that body according to the way that Scripture instructs us. And the Bible teaches that the church universal is to be expressed through Local churches with known members and identified leadership. Local churches is how the church universal is to express itself in obedience to how Christ the head has chosen to organize it. And the churches in the New Testament, we find, knew who their members were. Typically at that time, it was identification through the means of baptism. That was how you publicly identified both with Christ and with the church and who their leaders were. Those were also publicly appointed with the knowledge of the congregation. The exact means by which the record of those who were in the church was maintained, what form, formal or informal that took, that is not in Scripture. And so we don't want to indicate that there's one right way commanded by God for a church to keep track of its own, but it is clear in Scripture that people were aware of who was part of their church. And so thus, the New Testament teaches that it is necessary to be obedient for every believer to seek to be an active member, not only of the universal church, but of some local church. And additionally, the New Testament suggests, by example, the wisdom of identifying the members and leaders of those local churches in some way, 
And again, how exactly this membership is to be identified is not commanded in Scripture, and it is therefore left up to the discretion and wisdom of individual churches. And if all this seems needlessly methodical and basic, you're like, I know, I get that already. I can sympathize. But it's worthwhile to build the argument this way because we want to approach church membership from the ground up. And it's always a good review to go back to the beginning and be reminded about these things. And once again, not to do so in a way that implies that's not happening here. Because praise God, you're here. This is a church that has people who are members of one another. And that brings us then to the subject for today, which emphasizes the practical outworking of our membership with one another here at Valley Bible Church. So we've looked at the biblical case for church membership, and now it's time to extend that one step forward and look at the biblical case for committed church membership. We will now consider where church membership falls on a continuum from loose association to close fellowship. And again, I want to state at the outset that one of the things I love about Valley Bible Church is that so many of you model this so well. We are a church full of many faithful, sacrificial, Christ-like members. That is one of the things that has made this church a place I love raising my family in, is that they can see what this looks like around them. So don't take this as a rebuke or some backhanded way of suggesting that we don't have committed membership here at Valley Bible Church. Instead, let it be a celebration of what Scripture calls us to and what so many here today indeed demonstrate so well year after year after year. And so as we begin to look at what church membership practically looks like as we are involved with one another in a local church, I want to begin by contrasting it with what it doesn't look like because in our cultural context, we're members of all kinds of stuff. If I talked to many of you and you started listing off all the things that you are technically a member of and have signed up for and are subscribed to, it would probably be shocking to all of us to realize how long those lists are. And that has led to, I think, some false assumptions, especially on the part of the culture, about what membership with one another in a local church is to look like. And I want to begin by observing that the, lo the local church and church membership is not like, first of all, a community park. Membership of one another in a local church is not like a community park, some communal place that we all share. We live close to Terrace View Park. We enjoy that park. When we show up there and I see somebody else there, I don't run up and say, oh, you're a member here too? We must have just missed each other when we signed up together. Isn't it wonderful being committed to this park together? No, we're there because... It's a communal place that we can go to to enjoy when we feel like it with no obligations or expectations. And some people, I think, feel this way about the local church, feel this way about their church membership. Again, I don't think that's true here, but you can see that attitude sometimes in the culture that I go to this church. You mean you're a part of that church? No, it's a place I go to because the slides are nice, the grass is mowed, it's got plenty of shade. It's a fun place to hang out when I feel like it without having any formal commitment or association other than I like it. And if I don't like it, I'll go to a different park. I mean church. The church is not like a community park. Secondly, the church is not like a rewards program. The church is not like a rewards program. We've signed up for many of those. And in this culture, you know how dominant that is. 
places have realized the only way to gain customer loyalty in a world full of options is to bribe you. And so they do. And we then have figured out that this is kind of how membership works. You survey the options, you find the one that has the perks that mean the most to you. And okay, I'll, I'll share in some kind of impersonal association with your organization. As long as you don't ask too much, I can leave whenever I want and you continue to give me more than the next guy. And again, people sadly sometimes approach the local church. Think of church membership along those lines. Okay, I'll, I'll be a part of your church. I'll associate with your church. As long as it's got the music I like and the programs I like and doesn't smell funny and I'm comfortable and I don't have to have any formal commitments and I can leave whenever I want and go to a church that has a better rewards program. That's not how the local church is designed to work either. That is not what church membership is meant to look like, nor is it meant to look like a social movement. A social movement, that's very popular today. People love identifying with the latest social movement, the latest cause or issue that is popular. And there is a lot more of a sense of closeness, a lot more a sense of shared purpose as people come together and generate enthusiasm and energy and action based around common convictions and a passion for something. But it's, a, it's an issue that has no border and it has no structure. And that's one of the reasons why social causes flare up with such heat and such intensity because the rhetoric is one of closeness and it's one of action and it's one of significance, but there's no defined commitment. There's no established structure. There's no given authority. There's no long-term reason to bind a specific known group of people together. And that's why social movements swell and then dissipate and give way to the next social movement. And some people approach churches like it's a social movement, that when I'm feeling fired up about a particular cause, I need to go to the church to get some religion, to get fired up, to be a better person, to try more harder, and then leave when I feel fine. That's not what the church is supposed to be like. And neither is the church meant to look like the state. And I think a number of the concerns that we have heard from you, and again, thank you for those, have been concerns... Along these lines, they don't want the church to become like a totalitarian state where all of a sudden locks and keys and doors are being slammed and clicked all around you, where expectations and regulations and rules are being enforced, where this thing becomes defined by its constituted governance and it's administrated according to an unfeeling contract. And there are churches, and some of you have come out of backgrounds where you've been in churches that are administered exactly that way. And authority is harsh and uncaring, and expectations are unbiblical and unrealistic, and it's a place where fear is the pervading atmosphere and control is the order of the day. This is not the church of Jesus Christ. So what is the church? Well, I remember when I was first looking at the opportunity to come here to Valley Bible Church, I had a, a significant phone call with the elders that were here, and I asked them about their philosophy of ministry. Our own family had been through a difficult experience in a church, and I wanted to understand what do they understand that the church is. And I was talking to Ben at the time, and he was saying there's a lot of different analogies for the church in Scripture, and he was going through them, a building and a bride and all these things. And he said, but there's one thing that is not an analogy for the church. It's what the church is. And that is a family. 
a family. And that's when I kind of knew, if they'll let me, I want to plant my flag there. I want to raise my family in a church that understands that it's a family. And as a young father, our daughter was, oldest daughter who just turned 11 yesterday, hey Noel, can't believe it. She's joining youth group in three weeks. Whoa, she's ready. I'm not. She was two weeks old when we first visited here. And I wanted to know that I was going to bring my family into a place that would be discipled in a church that understood what the church was meant to be. And that was a big part of what brought us here. The church is like a family. And I'm going to use a big word here. It's constituted ontologically and defined by known relationships. What that simply means is the church is a family because the church is a family. And you can't do anything about it. My children were born into my family or adopted into my family. And at that point, they are my family. No matter what they do or don't do, no matter what they say or don't say, that is just who they are. They are my family. And when we become the adopted members of the family of God through Jesus Christ, we become family with one another. And when we gather in a local context, as we are called to do, we gather as a family that's just who we are. And in a local context, the uniqueness is we gather with people that we know. There's a known group of relationships that have been brought together by Jesus Christ. And we share that. And I know for some that's hard because you've come perhaps from a family that was not a healthy family. And the concept of family is one that brings up a lot of distress, a lot of difficult memories. I know for some, the concept of being a family, of living with this many people and that close of a relationship is really overwhelming. You've learned to deal with difficult things in your life by turning the volume knob on relationships way down. And this sounds like turning the volume knob way up. And that's really intimidating. And no, thank you. That's just too much. I prefer to stay insulated. Some of you had bad experiences, not just even in your personal families, but even in other church families. And you're saying, whoa, that language is scary because I've seen it go very wrong. And I want to just encourage all of us, if you've come from a background where the concept of family brings up a negative connotation, would you be willing to ask by the Lord's help to lay aside your bad experience and say, God, what have you described this thing as supposed to look like? What is the good thing that you have created and ordained? And how can we make sure that at Valley Bible Church, we're not imitating other families, but we are becoming the family he has called us to be and be able to celebrate the joy that that is meant to bring us. And as a family, we have been given a pattern of how we can do that, of how we can live together with one another in a way that will bring great joy and be to our great good. And that pattern is one you can trace through the New, through the New Testament by looking in, in a shorthand way at one specific word in the Greek. It's two words in the English that you'll see over and over. And that is one another, one another. Over and over the New Testament, we are commanded, do this to one another, be this to one another. We call them the one another's. So if you're tired of long theological terms, there's a good one. The one another's. And I want to look at the one another's this morning as a way of helping us to get our heads around practically what should our church membership with one another here at Valley Bible Church look like as a way of then considering and setting the stage for the question next week of 
Is that a membership? Is that a lifestyle that would be helped or hindered by having a more public way of planting our flags and declaring this is what we are all about as a family or what I am all about as an individual here? The one and others were primarily written, I want to begin by noting at the beginning here, not to individuals, nor were they primarily written to the church universal, though they are applicable to all believers. But it's interesting to remember that in the context of the New Testament, the one and others primarily appear in letters written to help specific local churches. That was the immediate recipient of these one and others. It was meant to help local churches figure out how to live together in a way that would honor God. And those local churches, as we see in the New Testament, had already just instinctively carried on the pattern of God's people from the Old Testament. That pattern was people that were marked out by covenantal commitments and marked out by a public identification as being the people of God gathered together in regular local contexts for fellowship and biblical instruction. That was the impulse of the church, and they've done that from the beginning. And when they do that, life happens. And in this context, the one and other commands of Scripture were given primarily, though with some exceptions, to define the way in which individual believers related to those they were in fellowship with in the context of the local church, a fellowship close enough to cause some friction. And how was that to be dealt with and understood? So I want to ask, what was the emphasis of these Commands. There's a lot of them. Uh, there's about a hundred times this word in Greek, alelon, one another, is used in the New Testament. About 47 of them occur in verses that specifically give instruction to the church. And I'm thankful an individual named Jeffrey Krantz organized these into a topical list that was helpful. And as he observed, you can summarize two-thirds of all the one another commands in Scripture with two words, love and unity. Love and unity. Two-thirds of the one another commands are either aimed in the direction of fostering our love for one another or of guarding that love in a spirit of unity. And so I want us to look first together today that church members love each other. Church members love each other. Again, a full third of the one another commands in Scripture are aimed in this direction of love. The command just specifically to love one another in that simplicity we've already seen occurring in John 13 and John 15. We'll see it again in John 17. It's in Romans 13. It's in 1 Thessalonians 3 and 4, 1 Peter 1, 1 John 3, 1 John 4 twice, 2 John 5. It's all throughout the New Testament. It's in the words of Christ. It's in the teachings of John. It's in the teachings of Paul. It's in the teachings of Peter. The New Testament is saturated with this concept that we as the people of God living together in a membership with one another in the context of a local church and all the relationships that that includes, we need to love each other. And that love to serve one another, Galatians 5, to tolerate one another. Turns out that is not an invention of modern social movements. The concept of tolerating each other is a Christian virtue woven into the fabric of the church from the beginning. We need to greet one another with a kiss of love. I'll leave it up to you in the spirit to figure out how to apply that in your life. But I want to look at Romans 12 at a passage that I think sums this up well. In Romans chapter 12, Paul turns after 11 chapters of doctrine and theology about the gospel to the practical outworking of that in the life of believers. And in verse 4 of chapter 12, 
Paul says this, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. And so he immediately pivots to talking about what this Christian life looks like in the context of being members of one another. And he goes on to say in verse 9, Let love be without hypocrisy. And I think a lot of us have been in some kind of a group, some kind of an association, some kind of a membership where you knew the goal of the group was to pretend to love each other, right? And sadly, church can even become that sort of a place where the goal is a place I go to pretend like I'm fine and to pretend like you're fine. And we call that a substitute for love. No, What we are called to in Scripture is a kind of membership you do not see other places. It is a love without hypocrisy, where we abhor what is evil and we cling to what is good. Verse 10, so that we will be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. Why? Because we're a family. This is maybe unique to my family, but there are times when I hear things like, I don't think I like my brother very much. The response to that is, that's entirely too bad because he's your brother and you must be devoted to him in brotherly love for the fact that he's your brother. I just can't get along with my sister. We're too different. You're going to have to figure it out because you must be devoted to your sister in love because she's your sister, because we're family. And in the church, this is our reality. We love each other with brotherly love and we are devoted to that love because of who Christ is and because who Christ has made us to be in him. And that spans common interests, hobbies, personalities, age groups, generations, affiliations, associations, socioeconomic status. You name it, we are devoted to one another in the church of God in brotherly love, or we are not walking in Christ-likeness. We must love each other. The local church is not only committed to its purpose. We've all been in groups that are committed to a common purpose. Right, You go to Costco and you get your Costco membership and you don't say, can you tell me more about the other shoppers I might be running into while I'm up and down the aisles here? Right? No, you say, hey, is there a good value proposition here to my Costco membership? Well, you know, that's debatable, but we have free snacks. I'm in, right? <laughs> that's, that's what we evaluate, the common purpose. But in the church, we are not only committed to a common purpose to glorify God, We are committed to a common people, one another, the family that God has brought together in Christ and put together in this local context, which here is called Valley Bible Church. Church members love. Second, church members unite. In the context of a local church, church members unite. A second, third of the one another commands deal with guarding that bond of love with a spirit of unity. We must be at peace with one another, Mark 9. That can be hard. That can be very difficult. Here's one. Don't grumble among one another, John 6. Oof. 
Be of the same mind with one another. Romans 12 and 15. Accept one another. Romans 15. That sounds really great and lovely until somebody walks in that you don't find very acceptable. Wait for one another before beginning the Lord's Supper. Well, there's a hard one. Right? God actually wrote through Paul to the church in Corinth, and he said, I am killing some of you because when you're supposed to be celebrating the Lord's table, you're eating all the good food before the people show up so you don't have to share dinner with them. And in the family of God, that is so unacceptable, I'm literally killing you for it. God takes it very seriously that when he brings his family together, everybody shares in the spirit of love. Everybody shares in the spirit of unity with one another so that we don't, as Galatians 5 warns us, bite, devour, and consume one another. And some of you have sadly seen churches like that. It's been said before that the church is the only organization that shoots its wounded. And that is not to be true in the family of God. We don't boastfully challenge or envy one another. Again, in Galatians 5, we gently, patiently tolerate one another. Ephesians 4, that great word that means to bear up underneath the weight of something like a strong bridge. And some of you have had somebody in a relationship go over you like, man, I feel like I got run over by a bus. That happens. People are like buses sometimes. Here's the thing. Hold the bus up. In the church, we don't dump the bus into the valley. We tolerate one another, even in their sin. We must be kind. We must be tenderhearted. And here's a key word. We must forgive one another. Now we're getting towards the secret sauce. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. Seek good for one another. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't complain against one another. James 4 and 5. Confess our sins to one another. Why on earth would I do something that awkward? Because this is a place where we love each other enough that we can have love that's without hypocrisy and where we all desire to be like Jesus Christ so much that we can help one another be more like Jesus Christ here. And that includes saying, here's where I need help. And I love how this is wrapped together in Colossians 3. You can read along the screen and follow along in your Bibles with me. Colossians 3 verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, Whoever has a complaint against you, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. This is powerful. As I said, this is the secret sauce. This is what makes membership in the Church of God so unique. Virtually every other membership, every other association, every other commitment you have with a known group of people in your world, there is a line you will not cross. If that Costco membership costs this much money, you'll drop it. If that community park gets this dirty, you won't go there. If your gym gets this crowded, you'll find another one. Pick your category. There's a line in almost everything we will not cross. If it becomes this uncomfortable, this difficult, this hard, I'm out. This verse means that in the church, that line is not to exist for anything other than the dissolution of that family by abandonment of the gospel itself. Because if the gospel is present in that place, there is always the ability for a division between any two people, no matter how messy it is, to be healed. 
There's always the capacity for love when it's broken to be restored. Because the forgiveness of Jesus Christ is so profound and so divine that in that we have the tools to maintain a unity and a love among different people who don't always get along that you cannot find anywhere else in this broken and fallen world. But we must guard it and fight for it. The New Testament, in fact, as we can see, assumes that in the context of a local church, those who are members of one another know each other well enough that they don't always get along well, that they're close enough that troubles rise, and that we must indeed fight hard to maintain the unity of our local fellowships. These verses aren't primarily written to help you deal with being annoyed at that national Christian teacher that you heard on national radio last week. Ah, can you believe what he said? It's so frustrating. Ah, but I need to bear with him in love. These verses aren't primarily trying to help you deal with that guy. They're primarily trying to help you deal with the person in this room that you're sitting next to. Or perhaps more likely the person who went to the opposite service as you and sat as far away from you as they could today. It's to help those relationships to become ones of love and unity again. To accomplish this, it is no surprise then that the third largest group of the one another commands in the Bible, taken with love and unity, this will bring us up to 75% of all the one another commands. That third category are commands wrapped around the concept of humility. Humility. We are to give devotion and preference to one another, as we saw in Romans 12. We are to regard one another as more important than ourselves, Philippians 2. We are to serve one another, Galatians 5. Wash one another's feet as Christ taught us in John 13. We are not to be haughty, but to be of the same mind. Again, Romans 12 and Ephesians 5, to be subject to one another. And I want us to look specifically at 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5, this brings a couple of these things together. Verse 5, you younger men likewise. Well, why is he singing out, singling out the younger men here? Well, let's face it, because we get the most uppity about this whole humility thing. You younger men likewise, be subject to your elders and all of you. Right? That includes elders. That includes everybody who is joined as a member of one another. All of you. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The church is to be a place of humility. It's a place where God has structured it. Yes, there is authority. There's leadership. There's headship and submission. And dudes, we tend to chafe at that the most. And God says, you're going to have to deal with that. But he says, I'm not just talking about that structure. I'm not just talking about the hierarchy of a church. I want to talk about every single Christian's attitude to every single other Christian. When you come to the family of God and gather together, all of you are to clothe yourselves with humility. This is very different than many organizations, many associations, many memberships. How many groups out there advertise as the feature to attract you, how proud you will be of yourself once you become a part of what we're doing. 
They wave figuratively, if not in fact literally, their pride flag over their organization. If you come here, you will be so cool. Not in the church of God. Not in the family of God. We are convinced Jesus is so cool that he is so cool that when I come together with his family, I treat everybody else in it like they're more important than me. That is what the church of God is meant to look like. A place marked and defined by its humility, wrapped about it as a guard against the pride that will inevitably and always be the great enemy and dissembler of the church. And so if love is fundamentally an expression of church membership, if unity is fundamentally the guardian of church membership, then humility is the attitude of church membership. And when we live that way, humbly maintaining love with unity, that will enable us to carry out all the rest of the one another commands that group around the ways that we can lovingly care and minister to one another. Church members care. Church members care. We don't judge one another or put stumbling blocks in another person's way. Romans 14. We are not fixated on our rights and our liberties. We are humbly seeking the sanctification and the good of others. Then there's more kissing verses in Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 13. Again, um, God's blessings on you as you apply that in your lives. We bear one another's burdens. We bear one another's burdens. We speak truth to one another. We do not lie to one another. We comfort one another concerning the resurrection. We encourage and build up one another. Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 5. We stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Hebrews 10, we pray for one another. James 5, we are hospitable to one another. 1 Peter 4, this is how we love and care for each other. It's a culture built on truth-telling. We do not lie here. We don't make stuff up here. We speak the truth lovingly here because we recognize that that is good. But we are not harsh here. We comfort each other. We know that this world is full of sorrows, even as our own Savior experienced. And so looking to the resurrection, we comfort each other. We encourage each other when we're faint-hearted. We say, get back up, brother. Join back with this band. Let us carry on in the Lord's name and for his glory. Let's stimulate one another towards love and good deeds. Let's be united. We pray for each other that we would seek Heaven's aid on behalf of our fellow brethren. We care for one another and bear our burdens collectively as we journey towards the celestial city. It's a lot. It's a lot. We've seen this morning that the fellowship of believers who are members of one another and express that in the context of a local church can be described as many things, but it can't be described as non-committal. On that spectrum I mentioned earlier between loose association and committed fellowship, the church pretty much breaks the needle on the committed fellowship end of the scale. And so then that leaves a question, two questions really, that every believer must answer 
when they've been brought into the family of God and they seek to be faithful. The first is, where will I commit? To which local gathering of God's people will I commit myself in this one another way? And for most of you, your very presence here this morning is because this is the place that you have chosen to make those commitments. And again, so many of you have been very, very much the example and model of what they should look like. There may be those here today who are still finding a church to, to call home that are still looking around. And that's great. That's fine. But you must know, as, as I'm sure you do, that it comes a time you must commit. You must find a place and plant your flag. And then the second question is, well, then how do I commit? What is the best way for me to declare in word or in deed that this is indeed my home? And I want to encourage you once more, please come back next week as we seek to give the strategic reasons why we believe a new way of declaring our membership with one another here at Valley Bible Church will help us plant our flags joyfully and tactically together for the good of our church and for the glory of our King. And that brings us then to our time around the Lord's table this morning. We talked about symbols earlier, the symbol of planting our flag. And Christ himself, our Savior, has given to the church two specific symbols to demonstrate our membership with him. The first is baptism, that initial act of obedience we are to take to publicly declare that we have in Christ died and been raised up to newness of life in him. And I once more want to repeat the exhortation from earlier. If you have not yet taken that opportunity and that step of obedience to publicly declare through baptism that you are a new creature in Christ and that in him you have had forgiveness for your sins and died to your old self and been raised to newness of life, please sign up for that. That is a highlight of the year to celebrate that work of God in the lives of his people during our church behind the church every year. But there is another and ongoing symbol, and yes, the rustling of the wrappers. You may prepare, as uh, that can take a while. There is another symbol that we have been given for the ongoing observance of this relationship we have with Christ, and that is communion. In the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Paul summarizes the great union all Christians share in Christ. He writes this. Philippians 4, beginning in verse 4, There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And then he goes on to explain how this great unity is expressed in the context of the local church. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, 
from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. When we take communion together, when we take these elements, we remember the new covenant in Jesus' blood, a covenant of forgiveness of sin because of the sacrifice of Jesus. But we do that together as the church. We don't do it alone. We take it together to remember that this sacrifice brought us not only together with Christ, but together with one another. And as we mark our gratitude to God for his grace to us in Jesus Christ, we also renew the resulting commitment that we must have to all those we partake of this meal with. We renew our love for one another. And so I want to invite us this morning as we prepare to take communion to remember Christ and his work and what that has accomplished in the form of his body. Would you take a moment for prayer and ask God that he would bring to mind how we may serve one another with greater love, with stronger unity, with truer humility, so that we may grow up together here at Valley Bible Church in all aspects into him who is our head and who died for us, even Christ. And as we do, I invite the music team to come up at this time. And after we have prayed, we will take the elements together and close in song this morning.